outpourings of love and devotion to good Queen Bess. He has her devoted subjects running, flying, flocking to be blessed by the sight of her glorious countenance as oft as ever she came forth in public. Deeply versed in such apocryphal material, the biographers writing after the accession of Queen Victoria in 1837 raised Elizabeth to dizzy heights of veneration. After personally nursing her divided people through a Protestant religious settlement in 1559 that commanded wide assent, or so these authors believed, the fiery red-haired heroine who shaped England's destiny went on to stride boldly where her advisers feared to tread. A cultural icon who presided over the greatest flowering of literature and art that the country had ever seen, she was the woman who had chosen to live her life as a virgin queen, marrying her realm as her propagandists liked to say, and so dedicating herself to the welfare of the people she loved so dearly, despite the personal cost. The Victorians were followed unashamedly down this path in the twentieth century by Sir John Neal. Consciously striving to make Elizabethan history popular, Neal wrote his highly influential Queen Elizabeth, 1934, a classic biography notching up sales of more than a million copies throughout the English-speaking world and enchanting generations of readers. In his hands, Elizabeth became an all-powerful, all-seeing, all-honourable monarch and an affable prince. The problems she faced as a woman in government were brushed aside. Thus emerged the Queen Elizabeth we think we know today from her coronation portrait in the National Portrait Gallery. That tree-ring analysis proves this painting was not begun until after she was dead, and that there is evidence the image is based on a face pattern which is not really hers, are inconvenient facts, readily ignored by biographers mostly content to recycle the old myths. A flurry of adulatory films, among them Fire Over England, 1937, starring Flora Robson, and the 1970s television series Elizabeth R., starring Glenda Jackson, peddled the same story. In the years of peace, Elizabeth spared her people from the turmoil of the wars of religion, which were devastating large areas of France and then the Netherlands. In the face of war, when it finally arrived, she became a warrior queen, defiantly confronting the threats posed by her Catholic cousin, Mary Queen of Scots, King Philip II of Spain and the Pope, and marshalling her forces to defend her country, the Church of England, and herself. Brave, patriotic seafarers like Sir Francis Drake and Sir Walter Raleigh could dream of reinventing England as an overseas imperial power thanks only to Elizabeth, England's first truly visionary queen. In revolt against such idealistic complacency, James Anthony Froude, the scourge of romantic sentimentality, had drawn a line in the sand. Writing in the 1860s, and later shunned by Neil, he dared to argue that Elizabeth, almost from the moment she was crowned, was little short of a liability. Habitually vain, she was unable to control her temper and was mean, short-sighted, and indecisive. Her relationship with her leading male advisers was consistently adversarial, and by refusing to marry and have children to continue the dynasty or otherwise name her successor, she acted selfishly and irresponsibly, putting the nation and her father's reformation in the greatest peril. In Froude's narrative, Burley, Elizabeth's chief minister, was her redemption and the power behind the throne. He alone had the courage to save her from herself.
It was his vigilance, and later that of his younger colleague, Sir Francis Walsingham, a man always clutching a pen and famous for his black skullcap, large white ruff, and obsession with state security, which kept the country safe. Froude's coruscating attack had some solid basis in fact, but was itself misleading. A pioneer of the research methods the best historians still use today, Froude had toiled for years equally in the dusty archives of Samanka, Paris, and London, where he soon came to realise that the unpublished state papers graphically illustrate how far the younger Elizabeth could find herself startlingly at odds with counsellors who were confident that they knew much better than she did. In what amounted to a hatchet job on the Queen, Froude was over-schematic, and yet he brilliantly captured the seismic fault line between Elizabeth's unflinchingly old-fashioned ideas about monarchy and religion and those of her more radical Protestant advisers.